Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and boxer. Um, I run Strength Field, USSF, and Lift for Hope. I'm Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I teach for Globe University, run my own business, director of education for the Mindset Performance Institute, do some stuff with you to perform, and I'm drinking cold brew coffee. <laughs> I'm Eva T, and I am a two-time Olympian in alpine skiing, and uh, currently I'm a strength and conditioning coach, a dental hygienist, and I have a business based on health optimization. Awesome. Very cool. Diverse, yeah. All health-related in a way, though, it seems like. Who wants to be (laughs) jacked with bad teeth? That's right. (laughs) Well, bad teeth is a sign of bad general health a lot of times. Cardiac risk and all that, right? Yeah. Cardiac risk, inflammation, all those good things. It's a part of your gut. So people don't think of their pie hole as part of their gut. <laughs> You're going to fit in right here very nicely. <laughs> okay. I uh, need the floss. Let's talk a little bit. I have one bit of news. This is from Time. Strength and Muscle Sport News. And I don't know if the listeners have seen this, but it's Jeffrey Kluger did this cover of Time. There's two pieces of bacon and a big X, and it says The War on Delicious. And we've been talking about this news media sort of buzz about how red meat and processed meats are bad for you. And I just thought I would sh- share this a little bit. Um, a portion of this we did not cover, and that is how uh, processed meats can apparently lead to cancer. Uh, before I tell you some of the theories behind this, let me give you a list. It'll make you cry. These are things that we probably should not be eating much of. Uh-oh. Well, actually, some of these I wouldn't eat a lot of. But, like, I like my corned beef. I admit. I like bacon. Damn it. Now now I can't have my bacon. You know, of course, I'm going to have it anyway. Um, packaged turkey. Sausages. Pepperoni. Beef jerky. Uh, canned meats. Chicken nuggets. Any bologna and hot dogs we were talking about before. So, some of these things... Uh, I, I don't know who it was. One of us said something about not really being a part of any staple, you know, of any sane diet anyway, except for maybe, I don't know, I, I eat turkey lunch meat sometimes, although I get the natural stuff. But um, So here's what's in this stuff. Uh, number one, uh, nitrates and nitrites. It says a lot of processed meats contain these uh, preservative. They're salts, uh, either synthetic or natural source. It says nitrates often turn to nitrites in the body where they can react with amines in the meat to form carcinogenic compounds and damage your DNA. Uh, And I had mentioned in previous weeks that, yeah, the nitrites especially, uh, I have a friend who eats a lot of low-fat bologna. Um, He's like, well, it's low-fat. You know, I'm like, yeah, and it's loaded with nitrites, so and that's going to affect your cognition and cancer risk or whatever. Number two, heme iron. Now, listeners, if you're not familiar with how you absorb iron, you might absorb maybe 30, even 40% of heme iron as opposed to maybe single-digit percentages of non-heme iron. Most of the iron in our diet is non-heme, right? It's not coated in animal, like, blood proteins. But anyway, um, it says it's an important molecule abundant in red meat. Uh, apparently, there, it might contribute to cancer by catalyzing the formation of N-nitroso compounds, Scientists uh, theorize as to why, but for now, lab studies have shown calcium can buffer against the harmful effects. So I don't know, maybe uh, have some yogurt or milk after you have your processed meats. I don't know. Uh, Number three, high temperatures, heterocyclic amines, and this is the stuff we hear about HCA, like uh, during grill season in the summer, uh, but it's that blackening, you know, of the surface of meat and stuff, uh, pan frying it. Heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, PAH, those are apparently what have been linked to or or even shown to cause cancer in animals. And it says major bacon bummer because, of course, you're pan frying the bacon and you're creating those heterocyclic amines and all that. 
you know, on top of the heme iron or the nitrites and all that. So anyway, those are some of the mechanisms uh, behind the, uh, the meat scare. Eva, are you a big uh, meat consumer? Yeah, and I did a little bit of homework on that, and um, I, I I would like to hear what Matt Lalonde has to say about it. Um, he's you know chemist, super um, propeller head, and um, <laughs> I, I I did some stati- statistic reading on it, and um, it's 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 they really scared everyone by comparing it to smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about how many people die in the in the world from smoking and how many people die in the world from alcohol and how many people most likely will die from this uh, meat thing. And I think, um, the, the, um, the smoking is, is just astronomical. Um, drinking is like 600,000 in the world per year. And then this would be like 30,000. So I think it's a little, um, crazy pants. And I think there's more (laughs) research that needs to be done. And I think for most people, um, at least in, in my circles, uh, aren't really eating enough of this to, um, to be losing sleep at night. Yeah. 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 And in the studies too, it was very high amounts and it was done in isolation in most of the studies. Um, so if you look at, I did an article on my website a while ago for it too. And that, you know, if you combine it with other things that have good, you know, antioxidants, polyphenols, you know, green tea, or you just eat vegetables with your meal, you know, a lot of those can actually counteract um, a lot of the sort of bad things that are produced from grilling right, that too. Right so, yeah. You know, if I can add, even coffee, coffee is the number one source of antioxidants in the U.S. at least. Yeah. So, and there's a more than one study suggesting that it really reduces cancer of the oral mucosa. So, I don't know about stomach cancer. I'd have to look into that one. But, um, yeah, like you said, there's, you don't want to be crazy pants. You're back and forth, right? I mean, are you having some vegetables and tea? And I mean, you know, uh, I like I said, one practical tip if you're concerned about that, because I didn't like some of the stuff about affecting cognition and mood. So I get that. Uh, you can go to Walmart and get those like natural meat. They're um, phosphate uh, preserved instead of nitrite preserved. Mm. You know, it, it wasn't much more expensive at all. It's not some like real high end expensive thing. So I... I try to do that just to minimize the exposure, but yeah, I'm not going to avoid bacon when I want it. It's not like I eat bacon every day, you know, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was just in Canada this past weekend at the Swiss conference and we went to a place in Toronto called the school for like a brunch and they had, um, maple cured bacon with sea salt. Oh, it was so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really good. <laughs> okay. All right, um, a little bit of Iron Radio news just real quickly. Uh, I just want to thank the following people. You know who you are. David, Patrick, Adam, Michael, Sean, Drew, and Jennifer. Thank you for uh, participating in our fall funds drive. Uh, It really helps, especially with some of the tech uh, blowouts we've had lately and that sort of stuff. It keeps us coming to you. So you are very appreciated. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. by the way, if someone has become a supporting member, the $4 per month supporting member or a significant one-time donor, uh, you can email me if you like. Um, Fortress is swamped with work these days. A lot of people know this, but it's lawnman7 at hotmail.com. Uh, and I will make sure I get you uh, some of the audio goodies that you might deserve. So some people on this list might get mugs or I've got a little stash of different things here, but uh, mouse pads, that kind of thing. But also, um, if you want an audio lecture about how to realistically uh, keep your testosterone levels up, uh, I will send you that. So just as a little thank you. Okay, and then here's our question for the week. And uh, Eva, please chime in if, if you feel so inclined. Um, this is from Andrew. I'm not sure if this is where I'm supposed to submit listener questions, but I have a question I would very much like Phil and the whole gang's opinion on. I remember Phil saying one of his legs is slightly longer than the other. Apparently, I too have this dysfunction, and it may be the key to diagnosing my intermittent lower back pain. I have been on and off strength and physique athlete for 15 years, uh, but I have been very serious for the last five. I'm now 28. I started weightlifting in high school for football and was squatting 315 for sets of 10 in my senior year. It's pretty good for a kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, My programming is built around the three big three lifts uh, with a lot of accessory work, similar to a power bodybuilding routine. 
My problem, here it comes, uh, is that twice a year for about 1.5 to 2 months, I experience substantial lower back pain that severely limits my weightlifting and my existence in general. I have a moderately pronounced anterior pelvic tilt. Uh, I have now seen a chiro, an acupuncturist, an LMP. Uh, I was wondering if you get flare-ups similar to this and if it could be SI joint related. Most of the doctors and specialists I see just tell me to do PT and rest. I, I would agree with this diagnosis if it wasn't intermittent. Uh, and I didn't have some amazing training cycles in between these bouts of pain. I can go from squatting 400 plus for multiple sets of 10. Dude. Um, to now it hurts to just tie my shoes. I have had an MRI scan. It came back clean. I'm usually sitting around 8 to 12% body fat at 215 to 230 pounds. So Andrew's pretty strong and pretty uh -huh. built here. Uh, I'm starting to feel a little better and will likely be squatting and deadlifting heavy again soon. Uh, but would it still be worthwhile to have my SI joint looked at by a spine doctor even if I end up without any symptoms for a while? And then it says here, I haven't ruled out... Uh, rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, but because I am decent sized in decent shape and I do compete, people assume I'm healthy and I'm just making all this up. That would be frustrating. A doctor just looks at you like, what? Mm -hmm. You know, um, mm -hmm. it can be quite debilitating and I would love any input you guys have. Uh, thanks. P.S. This problem has been with me a long time and it does predate any enhanced time frames in my life. Thank you again for taking the time to read this, Andrew. Okay. Uh, Phil, this is right up your alley, man. Yeah, and it's hard to give a direct answer to this, but um, I don't know. And it, yeah, sure, it could be an SI issue. Um, from what I know, SI issues are kind of overblown a lot of times. But um, you know, it's the first thing I'd say is where is it at on your back? I mean, an SI issue is going to be really low, like more yeah. at the top of your butt than it is in your back. Um, and there's some simple things you can do to kind of test that. It, just lay on your back and put one knee up and hold it and then push out and then push against it and push in and if it's an SI issue usually that's going to cause pain in one of the legs um right at the top of your rear end um other than that I mean I'd say I would start looking to to you know stop this from happening again and that'd be you know I'd, I'd look at your training you know if you know this happens let's go back and look at your training logs and is it is it when you've been pushing it too hard for too long and maybe you know, you can go back and look and, hell, every four months it flares up after I've been pushing loads really hard. Well, why don't we back off at three months, do some unilateral work, you know, and things like that, and then slowly push back up again. Um, you know, because it could be, you know, you got one leg longer, but leg could be significantly weaker, too, um, and, and things like that. So th that's what I would look at is imbalances and things like that that's going to cause this pain. Um me, I'm lucky. I've, <laughs> the one thing that's never hurt on me is my back. And, but I think that's because when I was young and stupid, I really enjoyed back training, so I did it a lot. And, you know, if anything's the strength on me, it's my whole posterior chain. So, and, you know, I learned that was a good thing later. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to diagnose over an email. Oh, no doubt. And, you know, and we are not, so, of course, giving medical advice, but yeah. I understand. And I'm sure Andrew understands that. But Dr. Nelson, yeah. what about you? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I would agree with Phil. I mean, the, the thing that jumped out at me, so you got an MRI. So the MRI is clean. Mm -hmm. So that would tell me that, you know, assuming it's been read right and everything, which probably has, that that's probably not a purely structural issue per se, which is a good thing. So there's probably some neurologic thing going on or there's something like Phil is saying that he's doing that's aggravating it. Mm -hmm. So going back and look, you know, like Phil said, right before that flares up, you know, what were you doing? Um, the thing that also jumped out at me was he said he has a large anterior pelvic tilt. And when I was down at the Strength Guild, we talked a lot about, about this too, that one of the things I've done over the past nine, ten months is try to learn how to lift again with a neutral pelvis. So almost more of a posterior pelvic tilt, but which if you've got a big tilt forward and you go back a little bit, that puts you right around neutral. That also helps pull your lower ribs down, uh, helps engage your core, things of that nature. To me, it just seems like it's a much stronger position and you're going to offload a fair amount of load onto your low back at that point. Granted, I mean, you can pull up videos and see people squatting, you know, huge weights with a pretty big anterior pelvic tilt, but 
my bias is that that's maybe causing some of the issues that he has. I do like unilateral you know, work. Um, I'm also a bigger fan too of almost sort of asymmetric work. You know, doing some lighter, you know, Jefferson deadlifts or a straddle deadlift or you know things that are off stance a little bit. Is he probably, if you look real close, he most likely has a weight shift either one direction or the other would be my guess. Um, typically, I see a weight shift more to the right. Um, it's like Phil was saying, you know, the left side then may be a little bit weaker than the other side. Okay. I can take this down the road one more step. Yeah. I, I think when my, my clients have a back issue, it's usually 80% emotional. Uh, something else is going on in their life and they blow out their back because because of something something else. It's not physical. Um, with the pelvic tilt thing, I think there's a lot of people lifting with pelvic tilt and it, it's in some places taught as the correct way to hold your back in lifts. Yeah. And I'm with Mike. I mean, you, you should have a neutral back. I mean, or me, um, between the top of your head and your tailbone should be one unit. And it's, there's, you know, I call it stripper butt when you get that, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, pelvic tilt going. And, uh, so I think people are not only lifting that way, but walking around like that. And, and eventually, you know, things rub together and things start to get irritated and you get into, you know, having a temporary back problem. So for me, number one, look at your logs and see, you know, what's going on in your life at that time. You're pretty young, so you may not have too much drama in your life. But um, and also, you know, just pay attention to how you're lifting and also to how you're carrying yourself from day to day. Mm-hmm. Do you think the emotional thing just well, increases their overall stress so their body is just less able to handle overall stress than to? Yeah, you know, I see people have that when they have that back problem, it's usually the same kind of thing every time. And you know, with my clients, I go, what's going on in your life? And a lot of times something else is going on. They're stressed out about something yeah. else. And and it might just be the straw that breaks the camel's back, not to, you know, throw in a pun there. But um, but I see it. It's a pattern with many people, and it's something certainly to pay attention to. Okay. Okay. Well, let's get to cool. Eva. <laughs> Yeah, so we have on the program today Eva T, who I first met at, I think it was, I followed your stuff for a while, and then we actually met at uh, Paleo Effects a couple of years ago, two, three years ago now. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I thought it was very interesting, just your you know story from being a very competitive athlete to now, you know, working more with people that are needing help on more of the recovery side. And one of the quotes I thought that really stood out, I think it was a panel you're on with uh, Chris Summers and a few other people that you said to compete on recovery. So with athletes that are very type A driven, um, I found that that's been very useful. So if you just want to fill us in on your origin story. Well, I um, skied for most of my life. I was on the U.S. ski team for 12 plus years and um, ski racing is very hard on your body. I've had eight knee surgeries and, Mm. um, you know, I was type A, obviously, um, and being an athlete really doesn't pay off down the line as far as health is concerned. Um, for me, I was, you know, an Olympic athlete. So the payoff was, uh, worth the risk. And I made that conscious decision, but where I went wrong is after I retired from ski racing, I started to CrossFit like a crazy person and uh, I loved it. And it fulfilled a lot of, uh, things for me, but I, I, exercised myself into a hole and um, I had no choice but to try to heal myself and take a hard look at you know what I was doing to myself was it truly healthy or was I working out some other issues so um, I had to slow down I was forced to slow down I got some bad labs back and uh, you know my body started to get to uh, talk to me and so I I could see this happening around me but being uh, one of the first people you know to do this mixed modality work um I, I felt like other people were having this problem. And so I got into the business of just teaching people to moderate their fitness. Um, there comes a point in your life where you're not, uh, defined by, by your fitness level and, uh, there's other important things. And so I help people with recovery and help people kind of pull out of that spiral. Very cool. Yeah. And where are you located? Just so people know. I'm, I'm in Aptos, California, which, uh, is a small town which is in Santa Cruz County. So I'm in 
basically in Santa Cruz. Oh, beautiful yeah. area. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. And uh, I love to surf. That's my passion. And so, uh, you know, I've got the ocean here and, and um, it's flat right now. But, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful place. I feel lucky to live here. Very cool. Um, one thing you had mentioned, too, I thought was really key is you said defined by fitness. And that's kind of something I kind of went through even a year ago was that, you know, being in the profession and that type of thing, you're you always feel like that that has to be a big part of you. And obviously it is. And for me, I realized that I had to get to the point where it was something that I enjoyed doing in terms of lifting. I'm I'm not going to be professional. I'm never really going to get paid to do it instead of it being something that defines me as a person. Because when I got to the point where I was, you know, just finished my PhD and was uber stressed out and burnt myself out, I didn't want to let go of that part of my identity, even though it was actually making me worse. And once I realized that it was just something that I enjoyed doing, it seemed to be okay to modify it and maybe not do it for a little while. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about if you went through something similar and how do you coach people through that? Well, for me, like I said, I, I got some blood work done. Actually, I got some blood work done for a life insurance policy. And, uh, and I was hoping to get you know the premier rate for my life insurance policy. And my blood work come, came back and I didn't get the premier rate. And I gave my blood work to Rob Wolf to take a peek at. And he, he said, you know, you've got all the signs of um, overtraining and potential, you know, cortisol dysregulation. And uh, you need to slow down. And all you're allowed to do is lift, sprint, and walk. <laughs> and um, so I, I followed his recommendation and I started to feel better and I started to wake up and realized, man, I was just really uh, <clears throat> driving my body to the point where, it, you know, where I was wearing out my parts and I was wearing out um, myself as far as uh, fatigue to where emotionally I was, you know, not, I don't want to say stable, that sounds crazy pants, but, you know, I was just, uh, I was just a cranky baby all the time. And so, um, you know, when you, when you do things on yourself, of course, N equals one doesn't count for any, everybody, but I felt like I had accumulated through my ski racing career and through my further education, um, some, uh, some plans and some strategies to help people who have gone down this road, um, turn the bus around. Mm -hmm. So, um, that is, you know, doing some cortisol testing, doing some blood work, uh, seeing what it's like to take, you know, a lot of clients, I tell them the first thing we're going to do is just take two weeks off. Yeah. And, uh, and, and when they're very resistant to that, I, that, that lets me know even more there's an issue there. And uh, sometimes it's not an exercise issue. It's, a, it's an issue that they need to go see counseling about. It could be an addiction, you know, and it's, it's very hard once people get into this cycle to get them to slow down. In fact, it's probably harder to get them to slow down than it is to get them to train. Mm -hmm. So, but everyone wants to be an athlete. So, um, that's why I came up with my athlete classification. I don't know if you heard of that, but you know, oh, what I, is that? I, Can you explain it well, to us? I consider, I consider the true athlete, the one that's been working on their craft for their whole life. You know, they didn't jump in when they were 40 and, you know, start being an athlete. So a, a true athlete is someone that is, is paid for what they do. It's their livelihood. Um, it, they've been working on it since they were a child. Um, and then there's the recreational athlete and that's the person who, you know, maybe was a bookworm through college and maybe they were didactic and now, you know, they've always wanted to be active. They wanted, always wanted to call themselves an athlete and, you know, they've jumped into athletics later in life. And that's the dangerous one because people, you know, listen to, they watch, you know, different athletes on television and cereal boxes and, you know, the harder you work and the more you work, the better you get. And the reality is for athletes or professional athletes is that they're, everyone can work out where, where the money is, is in recovery. And so, um, that's where the recreational athlete is missing it. It's kind of the more or better attitude. And then the third level is the exerciser. And, um, that's someone that just wants to be healthy and keep moving. And that's what I am right now. I'm happy to say I'm just an exerciser. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really have a, um, 
a, a big plan. I try to lift a couple times a week. I try to sprint. I try to get in the water and surf. And I just try to be active, you know, four to five days a week. And, um, you know, my status now as far as health is, you know, I'm, I'm nursing a, a pretty sore knee. And, you know, I get back problems just like your caller um, that, that or your writer, the person that wrote in. And, you know, I have my issues. And, and the challenge now is how do you get through those and um, keep a certain level of fitness and how do you get through those without really going backwards and um so uh there you go okay hey i'll tell you what let's let's go to break quickly and then we come back we're sort of drifting into the topic already because uh, actually eva i've got a couple of questions just from what you're you've been saying so uh let's go to break real quick and when we come back um we'll get back to eva Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So – Uh, Whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. I can't stop feeling Some of us don't understand How lucky we are To be living in this Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress-Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. Every week, it's been our privilege to bring you weekly news, experts, and gym talk. Did you know that now roughly 20,000 brothers and sisters of Iron count on us for these things? Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org, and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. 
you'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Welcome back to Iron Radio. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Coach Phil Stevens. And today we're talking to strength and conditioning coach and former Olympic athlete, Eva T. So thanks for being on the program here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And Lonnie, you had a question we were talking about, about some statistics you wanted to ask? Well, well, just uh, I thought it might put it in perspective for some of our uh, our listeners if Eva could explain uh her age and her height and her weight, because she, you know, she talks about some of her body parts. She's trying to keep them from giving out. She's had multiple surgeries. She's wrestled with some of the psychological things about, you know, being okay with just being an exerciser. Because uh, that's her sort of identity shift. You know, that's got to mm-hmm. be tough. So I was curious about height, weight, and age. Okay. Oh man. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you, it, when you talk about the identity shift, it's very hard to be. When you're an Olympic athlete, you've got a huge ego. So this has been a lot about ego. Um, And that's why I'm not going to tell you my age. No. (laughs) Okay, so I just turned 50. And um, I am 5'5". And I weigh, eh, I float between maybe 140, 145. Okay. So I call myself a Clydesdale. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So no long distance running for this kid. So there's my stats. Okay. Yeah. And if people have met you, I would have never guessed you were you were that old. I don't think anyone would have hey, no. ever Careful. guessed that. So well, thank you're you. doing good. <laughs> it, it, it's it's funny, isn't it, that uh, I've heard that people define older as 15 years beyond your current age. You know, yeah. so I'm 47 now. And, I, you know, when I was in college, like in, in exercise science classes and stuff, I would have been like, oh, my God, you know, 47, 50 years old, that's like special populations. I can't push those people, you know. And how, how different, you know. Don't, don't make me cry over here. <laughs> but, you know, now, now being, you know, um, pushing 50 myself, I'm like, I really don't feel, I mean, I mean, achy around the edges, I guess. But as far as like if some undergrad tried to treat me like a special population, I think I would just sit on him. You know, <laughs> that's not that's not going to work there, little mister. So it, it's just funny. You know, you, you get a different perspective about what you're capable of. Uh, but, yeah, you also become more uh, mature. And I used to hate that word. I thought maturity was a word yeah. for uh, old people, you know, but uh, you do. You come to grips with certain things. So it's just helpful to have that perspective, I guess, Eva. Right. And I think that I think you see things through a, a different lens when yes. you when you get a little bit more, quote unquote, mature. And, um, yeah, my lens is, 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 uh, hugely different than it was 10 years ago and 20 years ago. It's, I'm, I'm a different animal for sure. And I, I think that's hard to explain. Cause I mean, if I went back, you know, 20 years to my 21 year old self, I wouldn't have listened to anything I said, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that it, it's yeah. almost like this, you have to almost kind of make your own mistakes at times. Cause you, because I had other people who, you know, tried to steer me in the right direction, and ah, I didn't really pay any attention to them. So I think that's always the the hard part too. That's the important time too. I mean, I was yeah. the same. I mean, I'd be offended if someone told me to slow down. And um, but you know, that's where really you do most of your damage. Mm-hmm. Is is you know, I call it the stupid gene. But that stupid gene takes over <laughs> in your twenties mm-hmm. and even your thirties, and you keep just going hard. Um, and, you know, I, I, I like to make the analogy, we're all like cars and, uh, you know, you drive that, if you go four wheeling all the time, your suspension's going to wear out. Then you start doing some new activity on broken suspension. Uh, it just starts to compound itself. And then with aging, you know, they say, if you don't wake up with some pain, then you're dead. <laughs> so, so, um, you know, and, and I, I, I honestly, my goal for people is that they can wake up as they get older and, and feel good. Um, I'm concerned with um, health span versus lifespan. So um, I want to have a good health span. I don't want to, you know, be a blob of tissue when I'm older, unable to function and think. So my goals now are, and my goals for my clients is where are you going to be in 10, 20, and 30 years? And let's try to 
you know, keep that progression of aging, that curve a little, um, shallower and, uh, let's try to keep that health span as long as possible. Okay. So I got to ask, how do you reach the, the young people? We were just talking about how you almost have to live through it. That's something my mom used to say, you know, Lonnie, that sometimes people just have to live through something. You could talk to your blue in the face, but they've got to experience (laughs) it themselves. How do you take this different lens that you've developed and talk sense to somebody who's, you know, 26 years old? Well, that's when you you twist words around a little bit, like compete at recovery, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, for type A people and, um, and, and just inform them that, you know, what you're doing in your 20s is going to reflect uh, as you age. And, uh, you know, for me, I was ski racing and I was crashing and having knee surgeries. And does it reflect now? Yes, it does. Um, but I think that, uh, that, you know, this isn't a, this is kind of a new thing, you know, to slow down. Um, they have a uh, boomeritis. I don't know if you ever heard of boomeritis, but they, <laughs> the, the baby boomers are having health issues because their generation was so focused on exercise and, and marathoning and, you know, these, um, these events that come up where it's not just a, an athletic event, it's a social event. And there's fundraising involved and everyone's doing a good thing, but, you know, it might not be the right thing for everybody. And so um, that generation, the boomeritis is now, you know, I think they're in their 60s and they're, they're, paying, they're paying the price. And so it's important to look at history and it's important for kids in their 20s to just, I'm not saying change everything you're doing, but just be aware and and I am verbally giving them some awareness and and mm-hmm. yes they're going to have to live some stuff out for sure but uh, you know a lot of times I have people come back to me two years later and and like like they've come up with some new idea and they're like you know training six days a week is too much <laughs> I'm like oh really I think I said those exact <laughs> words to you. Like, <laughs> yeah. 24 months ago. Oh, really? And, <laughs> and um, so uh, sometimes people just can't hear it at the time, and you hope that at least you've planted a seed. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and I was going to say the same thing. I mean, in the other ways, you know, basically, like with my high school kids, my collegiate people, it's, it's just forcing them to know you're taking time off. You know, mm-hmm. I'm the coach. Shut up. Rest. <laughs> you know? Right. So, um because, you know, and they just don't understand, but they usually realize it then after the fact, oh, he made me take a week off, I come back and I feel better. You know, it didn't, I didn't go backwards by taking a few days off. Right. So. Yeah, you know what, you know, then- that's, that's like clinical experience, you know, I've been to a f- physician before, you know, it, being a physiologist, I'm like, oh my God, it could be this, or it could be this, you go through this like whole systems approach, you know, and, and he's like, no, trust me, Lonnie, I've seen this 50 times. So like in your case, Phil, it's like, Listen, Coach Stevens is older than you or, you know, has more mileage than you, so he knows what's going to happen. So take the damn week off. You know, just trust me on this one. You know, it's like that clinical experience. It's so important. Mm-hmm. Right. You see, you can see, his, you see these stories happen over and over and over again. And, uh, and sometimes it, it's unbelievable when you've seen the story occur so many times and you see someone making the mistake mm-hmm. and going in and, and living out that story again. It can mm-hmm. be, as a practitioner, very, very frustrating. And um, so, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's harder with in today's society, too, that, you know, even, you know, Facebook, fitness, you know, just, oh, just beast mode harder and everything mm-hmm. is about effort and working harder and doing more. And I know that's something I'm actively trying to do a little bit less you know but i think it's you're also fighting sort of what the media messages and everything else that people are exposed to also which just makes it a little bit more difficult rest when you die yeah sleep when you're dead sleep is for pussies right yeah yeah Yeah. well that that's yeah digging that's just digging your grave a little bit Mm. deeper so i think it's important to keep your eyes open i think it's important to uh just be aware of, of uh, I, I think when people, if they aren't taking time off every six weeks in their training cycle, then, um, you know, you can, when you talk to folks, you can tell if they're, if they're kind of, I always say crazy pants about their training, that they, <laughs> they won't take, they won't take, but, but I can't, but, 
but yeah. can I just go to the uh, gym um, just twice? And you're like, no, just take the dang week off. Go for a walk and go to the beach and read a book, for God's sake. You know, it's not going <laughs> to kill you. Yeah. I mean, have a life outside the gym? What are you talking about? Right. That's insane. Yeah. Balance? What? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, yeah, balance is good, but I don't think many people I, – I, I wouldn't even say – well, it's it's a hard thing to achieve, and if you're not balanced in one way, you're sometimes imbalanced in another. But I, I think just aware the awareness is key to know, and and that's where monitoring comes in, and that's probably what my commonality was with um, with Mike is that you know I think monitoring where you are, what your stress levels are, and that's what yeah. I put forth to my clients. Um, you know, I use an HRV and, and see where you are that day for training and make an educated choice. You know, don't listen to me. Take this machine and use it and see how it goes. And if you're coming up with bad readings all the time, you know, that can, you know, the writing's on the wall. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that was one of the first yeah. conversations we had. And I mean, I've used uh, HRV through the phone now for, oh man, I think over three years. I mean, I've done research on it off and on for like eight years. And I, what I find was initially I used it with more of the you know higher end athletes, and then I just wanted more data, so I just started doing it on on everyone, so more recreational exercisers. And what I found was that for them, HRV was much more powerful to drive habit change and for awareness. So do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the background of HRV and how you use it? Well, I for me, I um, I met. Let's see, how did it go? Oh, it was, I listened to Rob Wolf's podcast and they had uh, Joel Jameson on there. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't really understand the concept of HRV. And then I started to do my own research on it. And, I, and then my father, um, who is an Olympian, and he um, was in the 52 Olympics in Helsinki in fencing, hmm. he said the Russians were using some sort of machine. And they're putting guys on it and taking them off. And, you know, he and I had some conversations and we realized that they were doing an HRV test. Mm. And so, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the Russians and the Germans are all doing, <laughs> you know, steroids. Well, maybe that's true. But they had they kicked our asses in recovery. You know, they had amazing recovery methods and tracking methods. So so once I figured this whole picture out, I thought, OK, I'm going to try it myself and um, I thought, God, if I had this HRV while I was ski racing, I would have saved so much, so much time and so much energy and probably would have enjoyed my career more and potentially have been a better ski racer, maybe maybe had some better results. And so uh, I didn't understand what heart rate variability was. I thought that it was just heart rate, and we know now that it's the interval interval between the heartbeats and how that uh, relates to sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. And, um, and, and now, guys, I, I, you know, sometimes those things malfunction, but still, I tell people, even if this thing doesn't work, if it's broken and it gets you to slow down a couple yeah. times a week, it gets you to, uh, you know, um, be aware, it gets you to, gets you focused on uh, potentially where you are, then it's feedback that you need. And at least you're getting those two days a week where you're slowing down instead of going crazy all week. So um, I love the HRV um, technically for what it does. But I also, uh, if people kind of give it the, uh, the thumbs down, I'm like, use it anyway, because you need a way to determine days to take it take off and days to take lighter. And so um, I think it's, whether some people don't like the technology and they don't think it works, it still works. If you, if you can understand what I'm saying. And I, I think it's great technology and I wish I had it when I was a ski racer and I wish every single exerciser, recreational athlete and professional athlete would use one. Huge fan of it for quite a while. And I even get crazy emails from people that are like, what are you still doing taking your own HRV? Don't you understand anything about your body after four years of doing it? It's like, well, I do, but there's still things that pop up like every couple of weeks that I was not aware of that'll show up on it. And like you were saying, I have the tendency of pushing too hard left to my own devices. So if I'm looking at 
a number and it's the data and it says, ooh, you know, today's red or today's pretty low. And I know historically that that's pretty accurate. I'm okay with, you know, kind of holding back a little bit on that day. Where I think if I don't have that sort of external check in my head, I always think, well, I can just listen to more death metal, drink more coffee. It'll be okay, you know, and having that other sort of, you know, just like having a coach that would do that, you know, having that external um, device or person to check you, I think is very useful. Well, I, I can walk around and I know a lot of people that can walk around in a lot of pain and a lot of discomfort and not feel, feel well and function where the next person would be in bed. Yep. And so um, I, I certainly need it because I, I don't have that self-reflection even though I try. I need that extra um, bit of information. And for the guy who wrote in with the back problems, it would be interesting if he had been using an HRV to see what his readings were because I imagine that he was dropping before. You know, the, the beauty of HRV is it is also counting your emotional status. And so... Um, well, very much counting your emotional status. So uh, I think that it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic device and, and you can maybe avoid a few of those episodes of pain and suffering by um, looking at that. Right. You know, if I can pull back the lens just a little bit for listeners. So the beauty of this is that by looking at heart rate variability, and maybe Dr. Nelson, you can explain this in gory detail in, in just a moment, but uh, instead of doing something in the in the lab, like um, oh gosh, doing twenty four hour urine collections for metaphrin, you know, metabolites of adrenaline, <laughs> or sending off salivary samples for cortisol to some you know uh, far away lab, or getting blood work done, this is a non invasive way that you can measure things, and and it's very hard to control the outcome of something you don't measure. So this monitoring idea, this quantified self idea that's been building over the last couple of years, this can be a very cool tool. So, uh, Mike, can you just maybe explain to listeners very quickly that, you know, this is just for monitoring, right? It's not treating anything necessarily. It's just you're keeping tabs on variability in your heart rate and maybe give the Cliff Notes version of what this actually is that you and Eva are doing. Yeah, so in the past when I was in the lab, the equipment to measure this, even like five, six years ago, was about, eh, equipment was about eight to ten grand to do it. And you had to come in the lab, we had to hook you up, we had to do all that kind of monkey motion. And now since everyone's walking around with a microprocessor in their pocket, via their cell phone, smartphone, um, they've transferred that ability to run off of your phone. And like Eva was saying, it's measuring the fine scale difference from one beat to the next and that's a marker for your autonomic nervous system which has the parasympathetic branch which is sort of the breaking the rest and digest and the sympathetic branch which is more like your gas pedal and i explained to clients that it's just looking at your overall stress now that could be from training you know especially more elite athletes who that's their primary stressor in their life uh, for most people, a lot of times it's a lack of sleep, could be nutrition, could be emotional status, it could be all of those things. So the good and the bad is that it's a marker for overall stress. So that's good from the perspective of knowing where you're at. Um, however, a lot of people still think that training is the main driver for that. And what I've seen just anecdotally, because the app that I use, the iFleet One, will you can quantify your sleep and other things on there just by self-report. Uh, sleep appears to be number one. Um, I would say almost emotional status is two, and then training a lot of times for people is three. Um, the hard part with all of that is that depending on the person, training may be the one thing you have the most control over. So if I know that that's even their third stressor, but they don't want to make any changes to the first two, and I can't get too much more awareness in there, when I write their next program, then I'm going to pull back on their training stress a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and last thing on that, too, is it allows you to kind of run your own daily experiments. You know, so yesterday I went to the gym. I just did a little bit lighter day. You know, my HRV was kind of low. But historically, I know if I kind of pull back just a little bit, you know, and do some easier hypertrophy stuff, it'll probably be okay today. And today it went up, you know, five points. Oh, cool. So I made the right decision, you know, based on my stress level. I think that's what's really cool is it allows you to run those sort of little small N of one experiments and you literally get the feedback the next day when you do the measurement. Mm-hmm. For me, um, if I have even one 
glass of wine or one beverage, alcoholic beverage, my HRV plummets. Ah, interesting. So, yeah. So for me, that's my N of one studies. I know that if I want to make some gains in my training, then, you know, drinking the night before is off the table. Yeah. Yeah. I had a client in the UK who he had two drinks that night. His HRV plummeted like 15 points Mm -hmm. (laughs) and which is pretty drastic. He emails me and goes, what happened? I said, well, what did you do the night before we go through everything? He's like, I only had two drinks. I'm like, do you normally ever drink much? He's like, no. So, you know, a couple of weeks later, repeats it again. Same thing. So, you know, for whatever reason, right, could be the behaviors tied to that, that it's his body perceives that as pretty stressful. Right, hey, guys, right. if I can just quickly, I know we have listeners that are skeptical, and I am. I mean, sometimes, frankly, I'll work with certain chiropractors or, or naturopathic kinds of uh, people. Uh, I don't pay them um, for the, I mean, just discussions. but And they'll be using techniques that, frankly, I question, right? Sure. So I want people to understand that heart rate variability is something that's pretty deeply entrenched in the literature. Dr. Nelson did his – didn't you do a lot of your dissertation using HRV? Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, yeah, so, I measured it with uh, energy drinks, and I did uh, one of their study comparing different uh, collection methods of HRV and analysis. So we know uh, that when you have differences in uh, between beats, uh, you will have different sympathetic drive. So this is not something that's hokey or fly-by-night. Now, uh, I think people like uh, Dr. Nelson or Eva, I think you guys are applying this. You're trying to apply this in – uh, clever ways, and I, I love Eva that N of one thing, right? Because how many times you talk to somebody yeah. who's a coach and they're they're convinced because it happened to them or they've seen it, then that must be happening to you, and that's not accurate. That's one. That's a one sample <laughs> instead of right. studies which take dozens or hundreds of people and take group averages and try to figure out what's reliable. It's there's pros and cons to that whole group average thing. Uh, Mike and I have talked about that, but oh, yeah. in this case, yeah, there could be genetic uh, differences, responses to nutrients. Uh, alcohol, sleep, uh, and this is all about you as an individual. And like I said, the more you monitor, um, the better you can control the outcome. So my question for you then, Eva, is because this technique is legitimate, do you literally have your clients compete in some way since you have a way for them to get a number or a, you know, there's a measurement here? Um, or, no, I mean I don't have everyone at the gym show their bring their phones in and go. Here's my HR like a leaderboard. <laughs> it's more it's more of a concept, I would say. Uh, it's not literal, you know. I've written about it, compete, and I've had the untraining challenge online, <laughs> and and uh, you know it just to to let people know it's okay, and and for those type A's to be like you know. Maybe not so much, you know, looking at HRV numbers, but hey, you know, I went and tried some cryotherapy or I went and tried this or that, that they're looking into, that they even put some energy towards rest mm-hmm. is, is where I'm trying to bait them to <clears throat> because all their energy is going towards training and not much care towards recovery and rest. And if you are a professional athlete and if you want to use the athlete name, you've got to Train well and rest well and eat well and sleep well and all those things. But I put that all into into recovery. So um, I always tell people you need to quantify yourself and qualify to train. So if you set foot in the gym and if you're taking a 6 a.m. class, I sure hope you got to bed at 9. Because if you got to bed later than that, why are you here? I'm sure I'm sure you're just burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. You know how so. how similar this is to there was something I got very interested in Kelman and Kenta. These are both researchers they wrote um uh, various papers and there's actually a book called Enhancing Recovery. God, I couldn't rec- recommend it more. It fits in so much with what you guys are saying. They have the, the TQR model, total quality recovery, and it takes yeah. you actually get points. So like if your RPE, if your perceived exertion today is for your training is like 18 out of 20, then you have to put 18 points back. You get points for snacks mm-hmm. and breakfast and sleep and stretching or listening to relaxing music. And this whole HRV thing would just fit that model so well because it's a a lot of it, the TQR model is more subjective. And this would give you some objective numbers, you know, to help mm-hmm. quantify some of this stuff. So it's a similar concept. And what I, I, I mean, I read that book cover to cover. It's just purely academic. I totally geeked out. But it was because I'm like, hot damn, right? Because if most coaches uh, 
had a business. Uh, they, I think in the, you're spending your athletes' resources. Uh, in other words, they would drive their business into bankruptcy because they're never yes. balancing their budget. <laughs> they're never putting anything mm-hmm. back with these recovery points and the idea of monitoring and all that kind of stuff. So uh, huge fan of what you're saying, that's all. Good. Good. Well, and the other thing is that, um, you know, the, the other red flag for me is, you know, when you see people doing a lot of, like, rolling out and yeah. – it's like I'm seeing, but I'm seeing a physical therapist. I'm like, should your exercise take you there, to where you have to spend an hour rolling out after you train? Like, d- does it have to be that hard? Are you are you are you working at a point of diminishing returns? So, I guess my theme is you know awareness. Like, be introspective and look at yourself from the outside and and see if you see yourself wearing crazy pants. And if, if you are, like. Yeah, change it up, you know? Think about it. This is a brand. Eva, Eva, crazy pants. This needs to become a brand, a button. I, you know what? I got that from Melissa Hartwig. (laughs) She taught me that, and I've I've run with it. So, um, but uh, yeah, I I think that it's important to just be be introspective. Absolutely. And and proactive, right? Proactive with the recovery. If you put so much effort into your training, it should make sense that at least you're aware of some of the things that you can put back, you know, and put, put a little bit of proactivity into the recovery part too, you know. Right. Yeah. I like the point system. I think that's, I'd like to learn more about that. But, you know, what happens when you train so hard that you have so many points that you can't even get the recovery in within the day, you know? And that's where it would be good feedback because, like, I'm in trouble here because I just trained so hard that I can't even put in the points today to – counteract that or to recover from oh that. there's no doubt and i those in fact i may put that excel spreadsheet up i put it up for free on the ironradio.org website before uh, i just made a spreadsheet and it'll it'll actually graph it for you so if like if you're in negative numbers and you're right there are times when i've been getting ready for a competition where i was below zero i was in negative numbers and the way that that's supposed to be interpreted is if you if you're like that for three days or more according to the literature you're officially overtraining. You're you're in this overreach state. You're heading toward overtraining, and um, yeah, because there are definitely times where you're right. You can't put back enough. You can you can expend enough effort and uh, stress and you know intensity that you're not going to put that back. You know, right. uh, so yeah, it, it's possible to drive yourself into the ground, like you were saying you experienced. So, I I just had um, Sarah Fragoso on my podcast, and she talked about you know, getting it to the point where she was training too much and it was, it was her identity, this, you know, working out. Mm -hmm. And she, and she said, I will never recover from the mistakes I made. She said, I will not recover. And I tell people it can take a year. It can take two years to recover from really going too hard for too long. And, um, and here's Sarah saying, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to really pick up the pieces for how badly I, I dug, you know, for how deep I dug my mm-hmm. hole. And I thought, wow, it's true. Some people may never, if you, if you give, if you dysregulate your hormones, getting them back in balance, especially if you're aging, you might have just mixed a pot that's not, you know, you can't separate again. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And the one thing I've seen on that too is that people always assume that everything is linear. So I've had, you know, some athletes who have been training pretty hard and watching their HRV tank. And then all of a sudden you can kind of flip where it becomes very parasympathetic. And that point can happen within a pretty short period of time. Obviously, there's a lot of buildup to that point. Um, but people think that, oh, if my performance is kind of eroding a little bit, eh, it's gone down for months, I'll be okay for a little while. And what they could be is it could be just, you know, a few inches from going right off that cliff. Right, threshold, and if you, yeah. Yep, and if you hit that threshold, right, so if you look at the literature for overtraining syndrome, you know, things of that nature, it's a very, very long recovery. You know, so if you can catch them even just before they take that final step off the cliff, it's going to take a while to pull them back, but it's not nearly as long as if they just go all the way right off it. Yeah. Right. That's that parasympathetic overload, right? Yep. The, the yeah. Body is a... forcing them to slow. I feel tired all the time because your yeah. body is talking to you. And and the thing I want to just mention, you guys, like uh, these folks that are doing this aren't bad people. <laughs> They're just no. really motivated, <laughs> right. type A, getting it done. You know, it's the person you want to have working for you. Yeah. 
but but their strength is their curse and so i don't want to you know be slapping anyone across the face here i am that person i was that person right. and i'm here to share that um that i've been there and i've done that and i've screwed up every possible way you can and in my in my business i i feel ethically responsible to share my experiences so that people don't go forth in that way thinking they're doing a really good thing and having great intentions but really just taking it too far nope well said yep and last thing i'll say real quick is that i that i have the hrv data and you have all this data now i told a client once a couple years ago that I wrote him in big, you know, letters. I said, do not train. I mean, his HRV dropped so fast. I sent it to two other people. One guy's like, is he a cardiac transplant patient? Oh, <laughs> I no. mean, it was, wow. it was horrible. And he's like, oh, my gosh. He's like, you've never said anything to me in capital letters before. Um, because I was thinking, am I responsible? If I allow him to train because I have the data now showing that something really bad is happening, not that I'm trying to diagnose him, but now could I be, you know, in some way responsible for what's going on too. So, Well, the trainers at the bottom line is the trainer needs to be educated enough to understand the dose they're putting out so that they can have their folks recover. And that's where the rubber kind of hits the road is that, um, you know, we've got a lot of different types of, um, ways to prepare people to be a trainer and some are more thorough than others and uh people are working through gaining experience which is fine but you know just understand that um you know training is a drug and uh when you train people you will have an effect on their lives and uh, you've got to just use a lot of care right you know and it's you're you're fighting against the um the mantra you know on magazines yep. and the industry it's it's not really unlike the food industry too we we have a fitness industry almost working against you it's always you know this ridiculous high adrenaline high octane you know parachute to work and then go to the gym and squat 600 pounds for reps and you know and ride ride your harley home at 90 miles an hour and then go dance all night and you know do it all with an energy drink and yeah i did that yesterday <laughs> Yeah. See, I'm thinking, oh my God, I want a parachute to work. Oh, see, I shouldn't have said it. Now, that's it. There you go. Now you, now you triggered me, and that is that is not responsible. No. <laughs> you got to learn to kiteboard. You can get halfway there with that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're guilty, yeah. Mike. Yeah. Yeah, I am. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being on, Eva. That was cool. Yeah, thank you very much, Eva. That was awesome. Good. I, I hope you. I hope your listeners uh, heard some message there, and. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate it. And I think this is good conversation. Thank you for bringing it to the masses. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, until next week, everybody. All right. See you guys. Thanks, Eva. Bye-bye. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store one for phil one for fortress and one for myself dr lowry and they're thematic so you can go into our halls of iron store and choose based on your goal if you need something to learn or read or something nutritional you can look in my store uh, lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition then take a look at phil's hall of iron and if you want something about motivation or daily training fortress's hall has what you're looking for there are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores we try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store and whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced you can take heart that you're not wasting your time the things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org 
And um, let us know what you think on the forums, and certainly you can request products, and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.